0: Do you remember class picture day back in school? I do. Every year they would line you up, they'd give you a comb, they'd arrange everybody from tallest to shortest, and they'd try to get a class photo of everybody looking the same direction and not blinking at the same time. Always a good, fun way to spend the day. Well, this is actually a picture of my fourth grade class from Starlake Elementary in 1990. See if you can find Jacob in this photo. Yep, right there, always in the back row. I was wearing my finest white turtleneck and cardigan sweater, pretty sharp. And in case you're wondering, that wasn't just a picture day outfit. I pretty much dressed like that the entire school year. Well, one thing I remember most about the photographer that they used every year was that he would give the students nicknames as he was arranging us. He'd say, all right, Superman, you stand there. Hey, you, Batman, take one step to your left. All right, Wonder Woman, There are in the back row. Stand up a little straighter for me. Yeah, that's it. This is something that happened every single year with every single class. He would give us superhero nicknames, and we loved it. It worked. It made us more excited for picture day. It made us better at listening to his instructions. I guess you go with what works. Well, in the same way, John tells the Christians in the small and scared persecuted churches that they are like the heroes of faith from the Hebrew scriptures. And today we're going to hear John encourage them by saying, you, you're like Moses. You, you're like Elijah, the prophet. And you all, you're following in the grand tradition of prophets like Ezekiel. I think that probably made them stand up a little straighter, give them a renewed courage to follow Jesus amid the struggles of living under Roman rule. As you probably noticed by now, Revelation jumps around A lot. Without warning, John's vision will depart from the main idea and suddenly introduce new imagery. You have to kind of get used to that. So there's these sections that we call interludes, where you suddenly get a new concept, and you're not quite sure how it fits in with the larger story. Well, the text we're going to look at today, Revelation 10 and 11, you'll see these interludes. The blowing of the seven trumpets is paused for a moment, and we get some new stuff. We're going to see an angel with a little scroll and these two witnesses that are kind of hard to figure out. Well, the purpose of these interludes was to encourage Christians to persevere, to reassure them that God's justice is going to be done, even if some of the faithful in Christ are harmed or even killed along the way. Well, listen now to the first interlude. This is Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Okay. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. "Go." Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The scroll that John is instructed to eat is different from the scroll with the seven seals that we saw earlier, the one that only Jesus could open. And we know this because it's referred to differently. It's called the Little Scroll. And the seven churches would have heard this message and thought of Ezekiel, the prophet, who was also told by a messenger of God to eat a scroll. It was a recognizable commissioning of a prophet to go and speak God's word. Ezekiel is in the presence of God and he hears a voice telling him now see if this sounds familiar you must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen for they are rebellious but you son of man listen to what I say do not rebel like that rebellious people open your mouth and eat what I give you and then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me in it was a scroll which he unrolled before me on both sides sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Well, in the same way, John and the faithful witnesses of the resurrected Jesus are called to speak a message about Jesus that will be sweet on their lips but is going to be hard to stomach. And that's because, like Ezekiel's audience, this message typically won't be well-received by people who are hard-hearted and stubborn toward God. It's hard to live among wealthy comfortable people who think that they have found the key to the good life. It's hard to go to them and say, nope, you've got it all wrong. You're not really in charge. Your kingdom, it's gonna fade, but the Lord's reign is forever. It's kind of like going and saying, hey, you know what? I bet I can stick my whole head in this lion's mouth. What do you guys think here? But it's something the prophets were called to do. Amos did it, Ezekiel did it, Antipas did it, John did it, and he's telling them you can do it too. Well, before we get to the next interlude, which some scholars have referred to as the most puzzling part of Revelation, which is the most puzzling book in the Bible, I want to give you a quick review quiz that will help refresh our memories about some Old Testament details and some things we heard in Revelation and prepare us to hear it the way that the seven churches might have heard it. So, here we go. Question number one. After the resurrection of Jesus, what did Christians mean when they referred to the temple of the Lord? Remember this? Your body is a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. By the time John wrote this, the temple would have been destroyed in Jerusalem. When they were referring to the temple, they were already in the habit of referring to the temple, but they were talking about something else. What was that? Answer is... They were referring to Christians themselves. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? All right. One out of one, or zero out of one, depending on how you did. We're going to hear John later on be commanded to measure the temple. And that means to take account of the believers who are in the holy city. Which brings us to question number two. If you were in power during the reign of Rome in the first century, what would you consider to be the holy city? This one's easy. The answer's in the question. You can do this. The answer is... Rome. If Rome is in charge and you refer to the holy city, you're talking about Rome, the mothership, the headquarters. All right. Question number three is a two-parter. First part has some math involved, so turn your brains on. Question number three. How many years is 1,260 days? Mm, Math, math, math. Uh, You can use a calculator if you want. You can ask Siri. But the answer is 3.5 years. Okay, second part of this question. In apocalyptic literature, what does the number one half and one third represent? Remember, we talked about this last week. The answer is some, but not all. It's a limited amount of time. Also keep in mind that the number three and a half, which is, is just half of seven, which is God's number. It's the number of completion or perfection. So when you hear a time like three and a half years or three and a half days, it's referring to this limited amount of time in which actions or purposes are not yet completed. All right, that was pretty good. Question number four, what does a lampstand represent in Revelation? You remember this one? I know you know it. The answer is the church. The images John sees are not always explained or interpreted, but some of them are. And you might remember that at the end of Revelation 1, Jesus tells John the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Yeah, so the lampstand image is, when he's referring to a lampstand, he's referring to a church. And you're going to get that one in the passage that we'll see here soon. That's going to be an important detail. Okay, question number five. Which Old Testament prophet called down fire from heaven? Kept it from raining for three and a half years and went up to heaven in a whirlwind. The answer is Elijah. Elijah, one of Israel's most famous prophets who spoke God's message of judgment against evil kings like King Ahab and Jezebel was there. Uh, and For his trouble, he was persecuted and chased and threatened with death. That could sound familiar to some of the first century Christians. Okay, last question. Which Old Testament prophet turned water into blood and called God's plagues to inflict the people of Egypt? You should remember this one. We talked about him last week. This is from the Exodus story. The answer is moses yes as we've seen many details of the exodus story keep popping up in revelation the passover lamb having the seal of god's protection while the wicked are called into account the 10 plagues remember pharaoh's hard heart from last week okay now that we're reminding ourselves of all of these details from the scriptures and from revelation itself now let's listen to john's encouragement for the church in the second interlude revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people from every people or some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, I don't think that John is looking into a portal into the future and giving us some, like, play-by-play of these future events exactly as it's described. But I have to... Admit there are some people that do think that there are people who interpret this in a way that's very interested about the details and speculating. Well, who's the identity of the two prophets? Where is this going to happen? Who's the beast that rises up and is going to kill these prophets? So we need to acknowledge that there is a lot of disagreement on how to approach and interpret and understand the book of Revelation. But I don't think that this is literal, because John says in verse four, the two witnesses are the. Two olive trees and the two lampstands, they stand before the Lord of the earth. Lampstands. We know that that's the church. I think that John is talking about the church here. The faithful witnesses, when they're referred to throughout Revelation, those are Christians who remain faithful even under threat of persecution or exile. It's not that this is something that will happen sometime in the future. It's that this is already happening now. There is an evil enemy who wants to silence the good news of the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus. And this interlude is about Christians who stand in the prophetic tradition of Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel, and they boldly proclaim the reign of God's Son, Jesus Christ. It acknowledges that, yes, faithfulness to the one king in a world of would be kings can lead to hardship and even death, but the God will rescue them. God is going to resurrect them. God will vindicate these martyrs and there will be new life. And like my fourth grade class photographer, John is telling the faithful witnesses of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Livermore and everywhere in between, he is saying, you are like those heroes that we all know. You're brave like Elijah. You're stepping out in faith like Moses did. You're suffering for a greater purpose like the prophet Ezekiel, like Jesus himself. And when this is revealed to the seven churches, imagine how big the smiles on their faces would have been when they posed for their class photo. Imagine how this word of encouragement and hope would have blessed Christians throughout history, throughout the world, in places where following Jesus was or even today is illegal and restricted and punishable. This is good news. The church is full of Elijah's and Ezekiel's, but maybe we don't always call it like that. Maybe we should get better about that kind of thing. Taking time to tell someone, you know what? I saw what you did, and it was a lot like Jesus. Telling someone, I see Christ in you. We think these things sometimes, but we often forget to say them. Encouraging words among the faithful can really go a long way for those who are suffering, those who are exercising the spiritual gift of patience or endurance, self-control, or steadfastness. It lets them know that they're not alone, that their work is not in vain. So when the church poses for a group photo, the photographer doesn't need to call them Batman and Wonder Woman. I think the church would much rather wear the names of the faithful. Elijah, Ruth, John, Mary, Hannah, James, Joseph, Andrew, Philip, and I think most of all we really want to be like Jesus. When I was growing up I heard a song that stuck with me and the chorus of the song goes like this. Sometimes I'm Samson with the strength to conquer anything. Sometimes I'm David when my heart is right and I feel just like a king. Sometimes I'm Thomas when disbelief takes hold but oh To be like Jesus is the desire of my soul. I hope that that's our desire as well. I hope that we can hear this word of encouragement and it can give us restored boldness and resolve to to keep on following Jesus, to keep trusting in his resurrection and that it means our resurrection too, that God will not forget us, that the prayers that we lift up before his throne will not go unheard. Let's pray together now. Well, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for John and his vision. And as strange and puzzling as it may seem, we hear the words of the prophets. We remember their struggles. We remember their sufferings. And we acknowledge that we are relatively comfortable, that we get by okay. But Lord, we recognize too that the early church considered it a joy. They considered it a privilege to be able to suffer For your name. And we see, even in Revelation, that the suffering of the saints and the calamity that surrounds will eventually wake the world out of its stupor, that they will come to their senses, they will turn to you, and they will give you praise and glory. God, we pray that that happens. We pray that we see that. We pray that we can be even just a small part of your plan to draw the world to yourself and to change hearts. Lord, if our hearts need to change anyway today, we pray that you will give us time and attention to focus on those things, send us your spirit to convict us, and let us be honest about things that we may need to do differently in our lives. Root out any darkness that is trying to hide in our hearts and just cover it with your light. Transform us, change us, and in doing so, we pray that you will change this world for your purposes and for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. What we're going to see as we continue on in Revelation is more criticism of the kingdoms of this world. The practices and the general philosophies of Rome are going to be called into question and force us today to look at how some of our modern day empires and their philosophies clash with Jesus the Lamb. But Revelation holds out hope that people will continue to turn toward the light of Christ and declare him as the true Lord. And you even see this uh, in chapter 11. Even after many rebellious people die in an earthquake, there are these survivors who recognize the power and the lordship of God, their maker, and they become convicted and they turn to Jesus. And the hope is that there will be more and more people every day who do the same thing and that ultimately we can all together declare the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever.